Yeah, good morning. I think it's me, Eric, or whoever's back there. It's pretty hot. How are we doing this morning? That is great. That is great. It is great to be in front of you in week number five of this epistles series. We're working through the, the letters of Paul to the church, to the Christians of the first century. And so we've been walking through Romans and then first and second Corinthians and then Galatians. And some of you probably are reading ahead if you're, if, if you're, uh, the, what, uh, you want to call it teacher's pet. You're uh, staying ahead of your reading and reflecting on what's coming next. And so you're trying to kind of stay ahead of what we're studying. So this morning we're looking at uh, the, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. Uh, one of my favorites, when Peter asked me, hey, Jeff, I want you to pick a couple of these to do. And so I looked at the list. And of course, the human tendency is to take your two favorites or the two easy ones, the slam dunk ones like I want those. So I, what I did, because I'm such a gracious co-worker, is I said, okay, I'm going to choose one that's my favorite, and then I'm going to choose one that's a little bit more difficult uh, so that he doesn't have to do all the difficult ones. So I'm not going to tell you what the difficult one I'm going to tell you that this was the easy one, or this was the fun one. The, one the, the next one I have is a little bit more challenging, and I'm looking forward to that, but it will be a little bit more challenging. So we're looking at, uh, at Ephesians, but I wanted to uh, reflect really, really uh, briefly on what's come thus far, what we've looked at thus far. And I don't know about those of you that have been walking with us through this, but I've noticed a few things as, I, as we've been going through this series uh, uh, about the way Paul writes. And, and one of the things I've noticed is that he is very uh, upfront and challenging. If he feels a certain way or if he sees a particular issue, he's going to address it head on. And I can appreciate that. That kind of uh, honesty and that approach uh, I enjoy. So it's been very challenging. It's also been very relevant. The things that he has been uh, talking about as we've been reading through these uh, epistles, it's, it's like you could take the first century and drop it into 2018 and, and hey, this fits. This fits. And so it's very relevant. But more specifically, I've noticed uh, three things about uh, Paul. I've noticed his passion for Christ. Uh, this guy was driven. And, and he had a heart to know Jesus in a real way. And I can appreciate that. And I've been challenged by that. He's, he's really stressed the importance of unity, of being together, being unified as a, as a group of people, as a church. Uh, unity has been uh, crucial. But more than anything else, I've noticed his love for the people that he's writing to, uh, his pastor's heart. And, and so one of the things that challenged me about, and I just, I don't know if I've ever... Uh, said this in, in my opportunities of being in front of you, and, and I know that Peter would echo the same thing as, as pastors, I want you to know this. You, don't, you are not just people who attend my church or the, who attend the same church that I go to. Uh, I, I don't see it that way. I, I want you to know of my heart and Peter's heart for you as people, that we love you, that this isn't just, hey, we, we attend, we come to the same place on Sunday morning. It's much more profound than that. As Paul is writing to the churches in the first century, you can see his heart for the people he's writing to. And to me, that resonates with where I, where I am working within this body here. You are not just people I happen to see once a week or during the week. You're people I love 
uh, well, dearly, and what, who, people that I want to see grow and develop in your faith in the same way I think Paul was saying the same thing. That's our heart. That's what we want to see happen. So as we reflect on what uh, Paul wrote, we've got a treasure here. We've got a treasure. We can, we can benefit from what Paul had to say to the people he was writing to. And it reminds me of uh, a, a number of years ago, apparently, and I'm going to say apparently because I don't have like the day and date or the newspaper article, but apparently uh, down in the L.A. area, there was a couple, uh, an elderly couple who were found um, dead in their house. And when they went and investigated and they did uh, the autopsy on them, it, apparently they died of extreme malnutrition. They basically starved to death within their house. And when they found them, they, they, they couldn't figure out why. And in fact, as they investigated and went through the house, they found in one of the closets a paper bag that had $40,000 in it. And so you think, here was these people. Now, we don't know what kind of maybe issues were going on. I don't pretend to know. But the, the point is, they had the resources right under their roof to, to feed and to take care of themselves, and they did not take advantage of it. And I wonder if sometimes we look at God's Word, or we approach it the same way, that this is a treasure. This is something that can completely transform our life, and yet it, it doesn't play the role in our life that maybe it should. And so as we think about what Paul was writing and the people he was writing to, you can... You can uh, I believe, see his passion and his concern and his heart for these people. And so that's what I want us to see as we look through Ephesians this morning. And as with most of these, it's going to be overwhelming. We're going to move quickly, but I've tried to make it as organized as I can. So let's go for it. Ready? All right, you're not ready. That's fine. That doesn't matter. So here's the deal. The, the background of this letter is that it was written by Paul. And uh, it was written from prison. He was in a Roman jail at this time as he was writing to these folks. And the approximate date uh, for this letter is the early 60s of the, of the first century. And so I want us to understand a little bit about Ephesus, where uh, he was writing to. Uh, Ephesus was a, a very important uh, town in the first century city. Uh, it was a place where a lot of commerce was done. It was a, it was a port city on the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's located really right now in western Turkey, the western border of, of Turkey. So it was a port city. It was also a place where uh, there was uh, main uh, trade routes that went through there, uh, roads that went through there. So it was a hub of activity of commerce, of people, of travel. And it was also a, a center point for a lot of religious activity. And as they've unpacked and done archaeology there in Ephesus. They have found uh, ruins that uh, indicate that it was a center for idolatry. The goddess Diana had a temple there. Uh, later on, uh, as the Romans were involved there, there was uh, emperor worship that happened in Ephesus, and there were temples and worship sites for the different emperors. Uh, so it was a place where it was very secular, uh, very... Um, non-Christian, as these Christians were beginning to move through the world, it was not a place where there was uh, a lot of believers, but there were people that were worshiping all sorts of different um, gods and idols. And so it gives us a good idea of the kind of context that Paul was stepping into when he visited there. And so let's look at Paul's history 
uh, in Ephesus. He visited Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And I want us to look, if you've got your Bible this morning, to Acts chapter 19. Uh, Acts chapter 19 gives us an account of his time in Ephesus. And we're not going to go through all the details there, but Paul showed up and he's preaching there in Ephesus. He's there for two years. And in Acts chapter 19 says that as he was there, he argued boldly and persuasively that as as people were listening to him, they they were convinced. And so many of them were converted to Christianity. A a church was started there. Uh, People were bringing their religious books, witchcraft books and otherwise, they were bringing there and they they burned them as they became committed uh, Christians. But I love, I love Acts chapter 19 because it gives me a glimpse of the first century and it reminds me that it doesn't matter if, if you're in the middle of the first century A.D. or if you're in 2018, people are just the same. So I want just to relate a quick story from Acts chapter 19. There was a gentleman in Ephesus whose name was Demetrius. And Demetrius was a silversmith. And much of his business was involved with making idols for the worship of Diana uh, there in the temple. And what happened was, as people were becoming uh, followers of Christ, they were moving away from their idol worship and beginning to worship God. And Demetrius had a problem with that. And you might think that his problem was related to the fact that, as a worshiper of Diana, that he's concerned that people were leaving their church and going to this Christian church. Right? I mean, that's what we would think if someone moved in, uh, another uh, religious group moved in and a lot of people were leaving, we would be concerned for those people chasing after something that wasn't true. But listen to what happened with Demetrius. In verse 25, Demetrius decides to call some of the other silver workers together, and this is what he says. He called them together, this is verse 25 of Acts 19, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana, would be discredited. And the goddess herself, who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, would be robbed of her divine majesty. I'm going to stop there. So what was Demetrius's number one concern? Was it uh, for his god? No. His, his concern was purely economic. This is going to impact me. And it just reminds me of t- 2018. And I'm not going to, I don't want to get political or anything, but I just want to be real that Often what drives a lot of what happens in our world today is, how does this impact me? It's not what is, whether it's true or false, right or wrong, how does it impact me? If it's going to impact me, there's a problem. If it's going to impact my comfort, my livelihood, uh, my future, then there's a problem. If it, if it doesn't impact me, then maybe it's not that big a deal. Let people live however they want. So what was, what was Demetrius' second concern? Certainly it was about uh, his God. No, it was about our reputation. People are going to discredit our temple. People aren't going to come and see this great temple and come worship here. They're going to go other places. It's not until you get to his third reason. His third reason is 
and uh, Artemis, Diana, is going to lose her majesty. And so to me, it, it just reminds me of the relevance of what we read in the New Testament. It's very similar to what we experience and what we, how we live uh, in 2018. And I wanted to point to one other thing. A riot starts in Ephesus. Demetrius gets everyone wound up. And in verse 32, there's a very telling verse about what happened in Ephesus that day. This riot happens. There's a huge theater there in Ephesus. You can see it if you look at uh, uh, pictures of Ephesus. People have gathered there, and for hours, people are coming and and, uh, causing this riot. And in verse 32, this is what uh, it says in Acts 19.32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And again, it reminds me of what we experience day in and day out. That often what's, what we're experiencing in our life and what people get so worked up about, they don't even really understand. They just know that people are riled up or this is a big deal and they don't understand the depth of what they're protesting or what we're, what we're all worried about. But this is the environment in which the Ephesian church is trying to live. And I want us to understand that it's not much different than what we experience today. That that as we look at what Paul was writing to, the people that he was writing to, he's writing to a group of people that were experiencing a, living their Christian faith in difficult circumstances. So here's the structure of how uh, Ephesians is laid out. Uh, he doesn't address any particular problem. He doesn't address uh, a, a particular issue. But it's divided really in half. The first half of this letter, we're going to see God's work. The gospel story, the good news, as Paul understands it. And then the second half of it is our response. Because of what God has done, what are we to do? How are we to live? And so that's how kind of how it's uh, broken down. And I would just say this. If you wanted to know what Jeff's biggest big idea of Ephesians is, and I'm, I'm laying it right up front. Uh, I hope nobody walks out because you think this is the end of it. But the, the, right up front, the biggest big idea of Ephesians is this, that how do I live as a follower of Jesus in a pluralistic, secular culture? Because Paul's addressing Christians that are living in a culture that is, there's all sorts of gods, all sorts of different choices for their religious life. Uh, and there's Christians that are trying to live as followers of Christ within a culture that is not not very accepting or open to this new Christian faith. So Paul's purpose is to provide a foundation for our faith that leads to a distinctive way of living our life. So let's look at it. Let's look at the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3. God's, God's work, God's work uh, in our life. And the first thing I want to say about this is I, I really believe you could read chapter 1 of Ephesians devotionally. That if you're looking for something to encourage you, something that is going to just make your heart sing about what God has done for us, read Ephesians chapter 1 and just keep meditating on it. Read it uh, a few mornings in a row. You will be blessed by that. It is a beautiful, poetic explanation of what God has done in our life. And he mentions uh, a number of big ideas, and some of which we are not going to have time to unpack this morning, but there there are ideas like that we are chosen by God, that God chose us before the beginning of the world to be holy and blameless, 
that we've been adopted as his children, that we have redemption, that we have forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus. Now, redemption is one of those Christian words that Peter, as, as we've been going through these, Peter's been trying to define some of these for us. And I think redemption is one of those words that we, we, are, we get excited about, that I've been redeemed by the blood, right? We, that's a phrase that Christians will use. I've been redeemed by the blood. And it sounds wonderful, but we're like, what? Okay. So tell me about what redeemed means. So here's the short definition of what we're talking about there. To be redeemed means to be bought back. And actually the context of it is related to the slave trade. That a slave could be redeemed by paying, by making payment. They could be redeemed and they could purchase their freedom. And so in our context, we recognize, and and Paul does a great job of reminding us that we were slaves to sin in our life. And that God, by his grace, redeemed us, bought us out of that slavery, set us free from sin because of Christ's death on the cross for us. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back. And Paul celebrates that in the first chapter of Ephesians. He talks about God having the eternal purpose and plan for us, that, that we can celebrate the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in our life. So chapter 1 is just a wonderful introduction poem that really uh, sets the tone for the rest of the letter. But the remainder of this first half, uh, he really zeroes in on three big ideas, and I want us to focus on those uh, this morning. And the first is this, salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're familiar with this. He says to us, you, you all were dead in your sin. You were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. He says that in, in verse 1 of chapter 2. And that echoes things he said in other places. In Romans chapter 3, he, he reminds us that everyone has sinned. That we have fallen short of what God has desired for us. In Romans chapter 6, he says the, the payment, the wages of our sin is death. So he tells these folks, you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. In verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, all of us have been in that place. All of us have experienced this spiritual death. And we know what it's like to be apart from God. In verse 4, he says this, but God, but God, because of his great love and mercy, has made us alive again. You have been saved by grace. This is central. This is the central good news of the gospel. The key verse right here is verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. Very familiar to many of you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have salvation by God's grace through faith. And then in verse 7 he says, this has all happened so that God's wisdom, God's greatness could be on display to the world. He has saved us so that the world can see his greatness and his majesty because of what he's done in our life. We have salvation by God's grace. The second big idea in this first half is also in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, he emphasizes this unity 
that this salvation brings. That we are one in Christ. He says, you Gentiles. Remember, this has been a huge emphasis all the way through the epistles so far. We've got Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is writing and reaching non-Jews. People that are away from the Jewish faith, outside the Jewish faith. He is reaching them with the gospel. And he says, you Gentiles were separate. You were excluded. You were foreigners. You had no hope. But now you've been brought near. You have hope because of what Christ has done. He has made the two groups one. The key verse is verses 14 and 15. He himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, unity, in Christ, that we are one as we come to faith, as we accept the gift of salvation through Jesus, that unites us across ethnic barriers, across uh, national barriers. As we make that commitment to Christ, He brings us together. And you can see in, in chapter 2 in particular, but really through this book of Ephesians, there is a huge emphasis on before and after. He says, Once you were this way, but now you are this way. And I think many of us could give a similar testimony. We could say, you know what? At one time in my life, I was like this. But now, because of what God's done in my life, I live differently. I believe differently. I feel differently. There's a huge emphasis on before and after. The third thing there in the first half is that we're now part of the family of God. Chapter 2, verse 19 through uh, the first, half, first part of uh, chapter 3. We're fellow citizens. We're part of a building, a temple that God is building uh, within us. And there's, a, there's an incredible um, verse I want to share, but let me give you the key verse for this section. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 20, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. That God is building something among us. As people come to faith, as, as we uh, grow in that faith, as we understand it, He is growing us. We're part of His family. We're part of God's household uh, together. And if you ever wondered, what's the reason? Why does the church even exist? Why are, why are we here? There are probably many answers to that question, but I would suggest that in chapter 3 and verse 10 there is at least one answer to this question as to why are we here as a church? Why does this church exist? Why does the, the church of Jesus Christ exist? And it's, it's in um, chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul says this, God's intent that was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. God has established his church as a, as a demonstration of who he is to the world. So as we interact with one another, as we interact with our world, our society, our community, it should reflect to them who God is. That's why we're here. We are here to be the body, the hands, the feet of Christ to the world. So that when they see the church, they're seeing God reflected to them. That can be an overwhelming challenge. It should be humbling to think that God would choose to use us to do that. 
But that's what he's done with, with the church. So that's the first half. This idea that of salvation uh, by grace through faith. This unity that God has created uh, within us. And that we are part of the family of God. That's what God has done uh, through the gospel, through the good news. I want to pause for a second because as I was reflecting on this, it, it occurred to me that Paul sounds a lot like a coach. Now, I'm going to admit that I have a bias here. I was raised in a coach's home, and so I watched my dad coach wrestling and football for 30-plus years as I was growing up, and so I... It's something that resonates with me. But as I, as I listen to Paul and I watch him write, it, it occurs to me he's, he's writing as a coach. He uses a lot of athletic imagery as he writes. Not so much in Ephesians, but in other places we're going to hear about. He talks about running the race. He talks about pressing on. He talks about straining. He talks about training. And I'm sure many of you that have been involved and had a coach in your life, you've probably had good coaches and you've probably had bad coaches. Uh, Some of you are those good coaches and bad coaches, whether you're coaching soccer or Little League or wherever you might find yourself. When you think about the role of a coach, that coach is trying to accomplish some things in our life. One thing he's trying to accomplish is he's trying to get the best out of you or out of me or out of us. He wants to teach us the game or the sport or the activity that we're involved with. He is trying to educate. He wants us to achieve to our full potential. Sometimes he's working with us as an individual, that there's things within my own understanding of the game or the activity that I've got to get better. Sometimes he's working with us as a team, that there's things we've got to accomplish as a team. And so he is throwing encouragement out. And yes, he is throwing challenges out and criticism out. This has got to be better. You're doing great here. Did you know that this is why we do this? This is what Paul's doing. He's coaching up these churches and these believers but I've found that the, the, the best coach, at least in my own experience, the best coach is that person that I feel like he's walking along with me through this. He's not just standing up there pointing out things I should be doing, but he is slugging it out with me. Now, he may not be playing the game with me, but I feel like he is walking alongside me with me through this journey. And, and I sense that's what Paul's doing with the Ephesians, that he is offering them Direction, advice, maybe critique, but he is walking with them through that. He is coaching these believers through their walk with Christ. And so I think that really starts to show itself in the second half of Ephesians. So as we look at the second half, uh, chapters 4 through 6, chapter 4 verse 1 starts this way. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In in other words, in light of everything I've just talked about, salvation by grace through faith, the unity that a relationship with Christ brings, 
the family that God's building, in light of all that, I challenge you, I encourage you to live a life worthy of that. And he's going to proceed to show us how we can experience this life the way he intended. And so the the first thing he lands on is this idea of unity. He says, make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Make every effort, he says, to live in unity. This last Friday night, we had the opportunity to experience that even within our own community. That there were churches that came together to worship God in unity. I wanted, we've got a recap. I want to show you real quick a little bit of what happened on Friday night, and then I'll make a comment on it. So if we can show that. So it occurred to me on, on Friday as we were experiencing that, there is, that there is so much that maybe seeks to divide us, separate us, whether it's denominations or doctrine or style, those things that tend to pull us apart from one another. I think it's essential that our community sees that there is a place of unity That as we come together as churches, that there are things that we believe together. That because of this person, Jesus, that we follow, that we've committed our life to, it has transformed our life and made us a body together. And I think our community needs to see more of that. I think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying this very thing, that you should make every effort to live in unity with one another. 
with all the things that would pull you apart, that could pull you apart if you allowed it, he says, strive for unity. Strive for unity. The beautiful thing is that within that unity, there is diversity. He goes on to say in chapter 4 that he gave some to be apostles, some are prophets, some are pastors, some are teachers. There's other places in the New Testament that talk about other gifts that we've been given. That even though we are pursuing the same thing together, he's given each of us a, a unique place to contribute to the body. You've been gifted in a unique way to be part of the body. And so as we are unified, there is diversity. There are things that give us a unique place so that we would build up this place, that we would grow into maturity, that we would look more like Jesus, that we would accomplish the purpose that God has set for us as a church, that we would reach the world with the good news of what God has done for us. Those very same things that he mentioned in the first half of the letter. The second part of our response is, or the the way that we respond is life transformation. Second, uh, chapter four through the middle of chapter six, Paul gives very practical, very accessible ways in which we can begin to demonstrate how this salvation, this good news, this this change that God is, is making in us, he gives us very tangible ways in which this can show up uh, in our life. The key verse here is chapter 4, 22 through 24. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what does this new life look like? If I am taking off the old and putting on the new, what does this look like? I'm glad you asked because Paul gives us the answer and I want to be very careful to say this is not a legalistic list of boxes to check to say, okay, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. He is sharing this as an example of the kind of change, the kind of transformation that God brings about in our life. And so he says, the old self was full of lies. The new self speaks the truth. We put off the old, we're putting on the new. The old self dealt with anger. The new self lives in peace. The old self would steal. The new self is full of generosity. The old self was a gossip. The new self encourages. The old self would seek revenge. The new self seeks forgiveness. The old self was full of sexual immorality. The new self has self-control. And I believe at the pinnacle of all this, he says the new self demonstrates mutual submission to one another. These are examples of ways in which God transforms the way we think and the way we act. And this idea of mutual submission is illustrated beautifully by Paul in the idea of Christian households and Christian relationships. And if you want to hear more on that, I would encourage you to go back on our website and, and look at our Family Matters series. Pastor Peter walked through a lot of this idea of mutual submission and how we are to relate within families 
in that series. So I'm not going to go into a lot of that, but it's beautifully illustrated by Paul in the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. That our homes, our marriages demonstrate this transformation uh, in our life. That there's sacrificial love, there's mutual respect, there's honoring one another above ourselves. These things are all demonstrated in our lives as we follow Christ. And then the last part of uh, this, of chapter 6, Paul talks about personal preparation. The, the struggle is real. That There is a battle going on in our spiritual lives. And some of you, I believe, are experiencing that even right now. As you sit here this morning, you're very aware that there is a, a battle going on within your life. It may be showing up in relationships. It may be showing up at, in, at work. It may be showing up in your neighborhood some way, shape, or form. It may be something that's very personal, a struggle that you're having internally within yourself, but there is a battle happening within your life. Paul tells us as much in chapter 6. He says your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces in your life. There is a battle happening, and he provides some tools to deal with that battle. And he, he creates this metaphor of a soldier and the armor that this soldier puts on. And it's there in verses 10 through 18. But the bottom line, I believe, of that section, Paul's heart there is, hey, there are, there are tools, there are habits that you can develop that will strengthen your ability to live in a difficult world. There are habits related to prayer. There are habits related to your time in the Word of God. There are habits that will help build your faith. You need to understand more deeply the good news of what Jesus has done. And when you do, it will make you better able to deal with this struggle in your life. And so he lays out the, the, the idea, the metaphor of this soldier getting ready for battle and saying, this is how we need to prepare ourselves. There are things we can do to be better prepared to deal with the struggle uh, in our life. So we've got Ephesians laid out there. There is the, the part that God has done. There is the part that we, uh, of our response, of a transformed life that God wants us to live when we come to faith in Jesus. So the question then is, so what? So what? So there's Ephesians laid out. So what? So there's two things that I want to finish with this morning. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to pull out your Connect card. Because on your Connect card, there's, there's a couple of ways I would encourage you to respond. I'm not going to require it, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to think uh, carefully about that. So here's the, here's the two thoughts for this morning. First of all, we need to recognize and respond to the good news of the gospel. We need to understand what God has done. The first half of Ephesians. That God has offered us salvation, redemption, by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That as we acknowledge that, as we uh, commit our life to that truth, that's where salvation begins in our life. 
And so my encouragement to you as a response to the book of Ephesians this morning is this. If you have never made that commitment of your life to Christ, Paul would say that's where it starts. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, but God, because of his great love for us, has made you alive again. You, by grace, you have been saved. You can, you can express that faith in Jesus today and be saved and have that new life in Christ. And we give you a spot on your Connect card every week that says, today, today, I made a commitment to Christ. I don't know the exact wording on your Connect card, but you see it there. You can check that box today. You can say, you know what? I want to make a tangible step in my walk with God today and say, you know what? I don't know a lot about what this is all about. There's more I need to learn, but I know that I've got to get my life right with God. And that's the first step. And you can indicate that on your card today. But secondly, you may have made that commitment already. And you have a relationship with God, but as you look at your response and you look at that life transformation that may or may not be happening, you may say, you know what, I've got some steps that I need to make. There's something that's got to change in my life. And as you look at that old self versus new self, and you say, you know what, I see a lot of the old self still showing up in my life, and I need to put on the new self. I've got to experience that in a new way. I want to encourage you uh, this way with your Connect card this morning. If there is a place that you are struggling, you say, you know what, please pray for me for this particular issue. I can assure you it's not going to get shared anywhere else, but I think sometimes we need to put words to what is happening in our life and be honest and vulnerable enough with our life to say, would you pray for me about this? Would you walk with me through this? And so if there is an area of your life where you say, you know what, I need help here. Please pray for me as I deal with this issue. I'm going to encourage you to indicate that on your Connect card. And my promise to you is that we will, we're not going to hound you about it. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you. But I believe that the good news should be reshaping who we are. It should be changing who I am as I follow Jesus. And it's not, ha- it's not something that happens at the snap of a finger. It's a process that develops as we more and more understand that. We should, our lives should be being reshaped. We should be taking off the old and putting on the new. We should be growing into greater maturity of faith. We should be helping to build others up in their own faith. And we should be proclaiming in word and in deed, in action, the good news of what Jesus has done. So let us know how we can pray for you about that. You need to give a voice to that sometimes, and we promise that we will pray with you. Finally, I share this from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. Paul says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I'd encourage you this week, as you, as you walk out of here, as you move on in your life, that you would make the most of the life that God has given you and what he wants to do through you. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful. We're grateful for the good news of Jesus. We're, we are thankful for, for what you have done. God, we recognize this is nothing that we have done in and of ourselves. It is by grace we are saved. Thank you that you are 
developing faith within us. Thank you, God, for the good news and the hope that this, this good news gives us. And then, God, we, we recognize that you want to transform our life, that there is a new way to live, a distinct way to live our life because of our faith in you. So, God, my prayer is wherever we would find ourselves this morning, that we would be honest with ourselves, that we would be honest with you, that we would be honest with our church about where we need to go, where we need to grow, what we need you to do in our life. So, God, I pray that you would speak to hearts, continue to work, continue the good work that you have started within us, and bless us as we head out of here this morning. We thank you for what you've done and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, have a great week this morning. Uh, Pastor Peter will be here at the front. I'll be over here as well. If you need to pray about anything, you got an issue you want to talk about, we would love to talk with you. But have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.